All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2 this morning. And let me begin by saying I believe we are entering into one of the most important portions of the book of Revelation for us today here at Calvary. A series of seven letters to seven various churches that existed at that time that Jesus wants to direct, uh, address directly, con- commending them for the things that they're doing well and uh, condemning them for the things that they need to repent of. Every week, Shannon, our church secretary, stops by here, the church, and she makes sure that everything's okay. And one of the things she does is she stops at the mailbox on the way in that's out there in the driveway, and she makes sure that there's, if there's any mail to bring it in, and she often leaves that mail on my desk to go through to see what is important and what is not. And I've often wondered, especially now reading this portion of the book of Revelation, if any day I would walk in and find a letter to Calvary Chapel Cardinal with the return address of Jesus. Now, I purposely left this envelope empty because I don't know what God would say to us directly. Do we want to know what God would say to us directly? I do. I would want to know so we could fix it or know what we're doing well. He hasn't given us one letter. He's given us seven letters. Potential problems that we may fall into and to avoid and to to accommodate those things that we do well. It is these letters that we will look at now over the next seven weeks together. And this morning we begin in Revelation chapter 2 with the letter to the church of Ephesus. So let's read our text together to see what the Lord would say to the church of Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have preserved, or persevered, and, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you'd speak to our hearts. 
on such an important matter, and that is our love for you. So, Father, we just ask that your Spirit would now draw our attention to your Word, open our hearts and eyes, convict us, change us, move us, Lord, closer to you. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. If I was forced to summarize Christianity, if I just had a few minutes with a person to describe the entirety of the Christian faith, the entirety of the faith that is found from Genesis to Revelation, I believe that I would have to show them or quote to them Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. And I believe that in these verses are found the three fundamental components of the Christian faith. It is, of course, Jesus himself speaking, answering the religious Pharisee, the lawyer who asked him which of all of the commandments are the greatest. And Jesus replied, he said, Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one true God, number one. That has to be established. For the Christians in the 95-96 AD period of time, monotheism, the belief in one true God, was absolutely opposed by almost all of the world except Judaism. For pagans had a plethora of various gods, and I don't say pagan as a derogatory term, but simply to indicate that they did not believe in or hold to the one true God. So number one, the Christian faith absolutely, uh, without exception, without apology, states that there is one true God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. It is a doctrine that cannot be compromised. We cannot agree to disagree upon it. It is fundamental. This is the first truth of the Christian faith. But now comes the second. Verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the first commandment. The one true God wants from us everything. I have now learned that over the last 30 years, some of the smallest words in the Bible give me the most trouble. Here I find that the word all is very troublesome to me. It's not some, it's not a portion of, it's not the leftovers, it is all. God wants me to love Him above all else. Now that's Staggering if you think about it. God wants me to love Him even more than I personally love myself. And here lies the problem. This was the problem in the church of Ephesus. For they had left, not lost, left their first love, who is God Himself. And then, of course, the third is found as an outworking of the second, and that is, and the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus went on to tell us that if we love him, then we'll keep his commandments. It is a love relationship that God desires from you. And we love him because, of course, he first loved us and demonstrated that love by sending his only begotten son. This is Christianity. There is one true God. He desires that we love him with everything and that he, and he commands us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. This is the Christian faith. And this is the problem that we find here in Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was an incredibly important church. It was in one of the largest cities of that time. It was a city that was on uh, the waterfront, and it was very large, and it was traveled through very heavily by many, many, many people. And so it was very important. The church in Ephesus was a well-established, well-known church. And we begin here in verse 1, to the angel. The word angel there in the Greek means messenger. It either can refer to an angel itself or the pastor of that church. I hold to the second that he's speaking to the messenger of the church there in Ephesus. But if someone believed it was an angel, I certainly wouldn't quarrel over that. Speaking to the church... Through the angel of the church, the messenger of the church, he asks to write. He describes himself with one of the descriptions found in chapter 1. He says, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The church in Ephesus was unique. If you want to learn about its beginnings, you can go to Acts chapters 18 through 20. For the church of Ephesus was impacted by Paul the Apostle himself who planted the church. It was uh, encouraged by Apollos. It was uh, pastored by Timothy after Paul had left. Of course, all of these individuals, heroes of the New Testament faith. Even John spent time in the city of Ephesus, John who wrote Revelation. Some historians believe that after Jesus commissioned John to take care of his mother Mary, eventually they settled in the city of Ephesus. And so it was an incredibly important church. And it was flourishing from the outside. They had a lot of things going for it. It was a church that you would desire to be a part of. In fact, Christianity took such a hold of the city of Ephesus that Acts tells us that when people got saved, they got radically saved. And one of the things that they did is begin to burn the books of the pagan religions and the books of evil and so forth. But also, Christianity turned the whole economy upside down. The people who began to complain against Paul were the idol makers. For in the city of Ephesus was one of the largest temples to Artemis, also known as Diana. And the silversmiths who built idols in her image started to go bankrupt because after getting saved, nobody had any use for the idols that he was selling. 
So he got, you know, he went to the Idols Makers Union and he got them all riled up and they protested and they came against Paul. And it was absolutely incredible the manner, the, in the manner in which Christianity impacted the city of Ephesus. Now we are just some 50 years later, roughly around 95 AD, 96 AD, since the establishment of the church there in Ephesus. And though things appear to be going very, very well, the issue that Jesus has with them is very, very serious. They have left their first love. It is interesting that Jesus identifies himself in a way that would have been extremely familiar to the recipients of this letter of the, there in the church of Ephesus. When Caesar Domitian, in 83 AD, his infant son died, and at his, what we would consider a funeral, Caesar Domitian then deified his son, and claimed that his son, because his son was an infant and an offspring of him, and now again the Caesars, believed that they were deities in and of themselves. Interesting thing that I learned is often that Caesars only resorted to physical persecution in compliance to the worship of them. It's actually called the imperial cult, the worship of the Caesars. And it wasn't simply just Domitian who demanded this worship. The other Caesars did also. It actually started with Julius Caesar and so forth. But when his son died and the Caesar deified him, he reminded the people by issuing a coin that pictured his son sitting on a globe surrounded by seven stars. Now, just like the book of Exodus, when God began to judge the Egyptian nation, he did so in a way to show and to demonstrate that he was superior to any of the pagan gods of Egypt. Here in Revelation, we will discover that in the motifs in which Jesus uses to describe himself to each of the seven churches, he does so in a way to describe two of his what I call macro characteristics or attributes, if you will. And that is his omnipotence and his omniscience. He can do anything and he's everywhere all at the same time. And as I meant to say omnipresence, omniscience is all-knowing. Now that being said, Jesus is now declaring that the true God is He Himself. It is He who holds these lampstands in His hands. He is the one true authority. And this is consistent with New Testament Christianity. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the head of the church because he is the one true mediator between man and God. Keep that in mind as we continue on because it will come to play in our discussion in just a moment. But after describing himself to them in verse 1, he then begins to commend them in verse 2. I know your works. I know the service that you are performing. 
I know your labors. And that word labor in the Greek means moving forward under great resistance. Moving forward under great resistance. Uh, Picture this, Nehemiah building the walls around Jerusalem under great adversity. Nehemiah was literally building the wall with this hand and fighting off the enemies with this. Great adversity. He then goes on to say that you cannot bear, oh, in your patience, meaning this continued willingness to keep moving forward even under the weight patiently fulfilling the plans and purpose that God has for them. And that you cannot stand those who are evil. It is debated if he is speaking of general evil, general sin, and I think that there is certainly a discussion to be had today. Have we as the American church become too comfortable with what the Bible calls sin? Have we become too tolerant to sin? Now, all of you know me well enough that I can say that and you realize that I am the epitome of the grace of God. I'm a huge proponent of the grace of God and don't believe it is our job to condemn anyone. But have we begun as Christians to become desensitized to the sin around us? It's not an uncommon occurrence. I think of uh, Lot, when he was stuck in Sodom and Gomorrah, remember, it, it was so wicked that he began to grow cold in his Christian in his faith towards God. He began to become carnal. He cooled off. One of the ways the world can cause us to move into complacency and compromise concerning sin is to begin with the laughter towards it, thinking that it is funny rather than serious. Our of course, our entertainment and industry has made, of course, billions off of that formula, hasn't it? Helping us to laugh at the sin around us and in the wake of that laughter, desensitizing us to its impact and seriousness before God. Anytime I begin to believe that I am beginning to become desensitized to sin, this is what I personally remember and maybe it would be helpful to you also to do so. Think about what it required of God to overcome the sins of the world. May I say with all you know, frankness, it required the, bruta- the brutalization of His only begotten Son. The 39 you know, lashes in which He took. The crucifixion, etc. The blood sacrifice of God Himself on our behalf. If this is the extent that required sin to be paid for, then why in the world would we ever take sin lightly? That's what I look at. Now again, my approach to people is this. Love the sinner, hate the sin. And I think that should be our approach as we approach people. Now, Jesus interacted with those who needed him most, and so should we. But Jesus never became like them to reach them. And that's the holiness that God is asking us to walk in. Be holy, for I am holy, Peter says. They hated evil. And those who were evil. 
And if I may say it this way, I believe that our church can learn that we should love the sinner and yet hate the sin, knowing it's that sin that is destroying those people's lives. Then why should we take it lightly? We should take it as seriously as possible. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles. Hey, let me... When the apostles went out throughout the world and people began to notice the authority in which they exercised themselves in and the power that they were given by the Holy Spirit, everybody wanted to become apostles. And the world was replete with those who were falsely claiming to be apostles. So the church of Ephesus, when someone came to them, there was a code at that time that apostles should be treated in a certain way, meaning that they should be given a hospitality and a place to live and feel free to feed them while they're with you and so forth. I mean, Paul was extraordinary. Instead of taking those hospitalities, he worked all day and then preached all night so he wouldn't be a burden to any of the churches. But others were taking advantage of that. Yes, my name is Apostle Brother Love, and I'm here. Here is my requirements to minister to you. I want only green M&Ms. I want a water mattress, you know, a waterbed mattress with a heater set to 72 degrees. I guess that would be pretty cold, wouldn't it? 72 degrees. And I want my supper exactly at 5 p.m. And then I will bring you the word of God. Ephesus was like, wait a minute, hold up here. Let's, let's talk about this before we go any farther. Now notice what Jesus calls these individuals who are imposter, as impostors. Uh, he calls them liars. They're lying to you. It wasn't only the way they conducted themselves that was a problem, it was also the message in which they brought in many cases was a problem, false teaching. They're liars, deceiving you, just, you know, cheating you from all that God has. These are all good things, and Christ commends them for them. But there's a problem. The problem is, is that in their abandonment of their love for God, Christ was no longer the preeminence amongst them and individually within them. The reason we're studying the book of Colossians on Wednesday night starting this week is to remind ourselves, just as Haggai did, that God must be the number one priority in our life. Notice these words with me in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Paul writes, he says, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. You get a little flavor or theme of what's going on here? And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have what? Preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, 
and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Paul is basically saying this is who Jesus is, this is all that he has done, and the only proper place for him to reign within our life is in a position of preeminence, meaning he's number one in all things. It is he who should govern our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. I can't say enough about Jesus, but that's what Paul is emphasizing here. And even though They had all of these wonderful things working for them. As he continues in verse 3 concerning his commendation of them, he says, And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. They were enthusiastic. They were passionate for what they were doing. Yet, there was a problem. Again, only God can see the hearts of man. And he saw the problem within them. Now again, this is a church that from our vantage point would seem completely healthy. And they were doing a lot of very good things. Things that we should continue in today. Continuing to serve the Lord without weariness. Being patient, laboring in the face of great resistance. Moving forward, seeking those who do not know him to share the gospel with them. But before we can do that with any degree of true efficiency and effectiveness, we must examine our hearts to make sure that we have not left our first love. In verse 4, Notice with me. He says, And you have, I'm sorry, nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. How many of your translations have the word lost your first love? You shouldn't. Because in the Greek, it is a direct construction that says you yourself left your first love. You didn't lose it. You left it. You were so busy going through the motions that you left your love for Christ behind. The Bible is replete with verses in the New Testament that state that love is the greatest characteristic of a believer's life and of a church. When Paul said these three Faith, hope, and love, for love is the greatest, he says. Now, we have to understand that it is possible, especially if you've been a Christian for a long period of time, to continue through the motions of Christianity, go to church, read your Bible, pray, and yet have lost or left your first love. The church was in its second generation by this time, the church of Ephesus. Those who had started the church were gotten older. The younger ones came in. They were still going through all the motions. All the programs of the church were still humming and moving along. And yet, a major component of the church was missing. Their first love. 
that in which they had left. That word means abandoned. They abandoned their first love. What type of love is he talking about? Because again, it's a very subjective word today, isn't it? Depending on who you ask, their definition of love may vary greatly from the definition that the Bible gives. It is the biblical definition that we are interested in. Today in our world, we find that love, of course, is encased in a tolerance that tolerates all types of behavior, not, even, not to, simply to the point of tolerating, meaning we don't persecute the person for it, but moves one step further by requesting, or I, may I say demanding, that not only do we tolerate it, but we affirm it, right? That we affirm behavior that is contrary to Scripture. That's the type of love. Oh, you must not love them. I remember President Biden saying that the greatest love a parent can show their children is to help them transition in their early ages. Really? Is that really the definition of love? Paul the Apostle gave us the definition of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'd strongly encourage you to read it. When you read it, please understand that he is not simply defining a word by its usage. Of course, when Webster went and began to give definitions to words, he, he observed how those words were used in conversation. He looked at the Uh, origins of those words, how those words began to give definition. I am thoroughly convinced that when Paul is describing the true characteristics of this unconditional agape love, agape being one of several words that in the Greek language used for love, it was a word that was obscure to the culture at that time. Uh, Agape wasn't used very often in the Greek culture. And so if the word was used, it often was simply defined by the context of the letter in which it was found or in the speech that was given. But when Jesus began to capitalize on that word, he redefined it by the demonstration of his own life. Paul is not simply defining a word in 1 Corinthians 13, he's describing a word. And each and every time that the word love is used in 1 Corinthians 13, if you substitute the word Jesus, it fits perfectly because he's describing a person. Now, it is this word love that I think we can best understand the heart aspect of what Jesus is addressing here by reminding ourselves of Ephesians chapter 5, if you'll turn there with me. In Ephesians chapter 5, I believe one of the greatest examples of this lovelessness that we can find is found in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Let's just read together. Paul writes, he says, Wives, now submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. 
Therefore, just as the church is subjected to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished it, cherished it, just as the Lord does the church." For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Just, at, uh, and, and just for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall join his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The Christian marriage is meant to be the gospel manifested, illustrated to the world, to those who do not know the Lord. That's what marriage was created to do. And if you've ever witnessed, or may have been in one yourself, one of the most miserable, saddest states that you can be in is a loveless marriage where you're simply roommates going through the motions, where you are married on paper but not in heart, where you share things and even maybe uh, bear children but don't have love for one another. I believe that all that we do for God should be on the basis of our love for God. All that I do for my wife is on the basis of my love for my wife. I love Dina. And in all the years we've been married, I found it interesting that she has never said to me, why don't you ever tell me that you love me? In fact, I even asked her that question once. I say, how come you don't just ask me you know, to tell you I love you? And I, 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 I do, But she never asks it. She goes, I don't need to. I know you do. When I do things for Dina, I do it because I love her. I think about her when she's on her way home from work. And I think about, oh, yeah, how can I make her day easier? What can I do for her when she comes home? When Autumn was born. She didn't have to ask me to go to the grocery store on her behalf so she could take care of our daughter. I just did it because I love her. I do what I do here at church not because I want to get up up here every single Sunday before you and teach and carry the name title pastor. I do it because I love the Lord and I love you. That's the basis for everything that we do as Christians. That's what we need to be uh, motivated by. I heard a general once say that nothing will lead a soldier to throw themselves on a live grenade faster than their love for their fellow 
members of the military. It's this love. Now, love changes over time. Often love begins with an infatuation that matures into a robust, mature love for one another. But when we talk about our relationship with, Lord, with the Lord, I think it's appropriate to look at relationships of marriage. Because it's meant to demonstrate the love that Christ has for us and how one responds to that love. Does not the Bible say that we love Him because He first loved us? The agape love described in 1 Corinthians 13. This is the love that we should be serving the Lord in. Again, we can go through the motions. We can go through the actions, the routines. But it is that that love that is important. Now notice with me that he does say here that this is a problem. Later he'll say that you need to deal with it, repent of it. And if you don't, I'll remove the lampstand from amongst you, my presence from amongst you. They were doing a lot of really good things. And yet, they needed to correct this one thing because the Lord wasn't happy about it. This is where we need to take a moment of pause to to allow you to consider yourself. Do you do what you do because you love the Lord? Be it you're you know, interacting with your spouse and your children. Be it serving at church. Be it interacting with people in the world. When you go to work during the day, is it the love of Christ, as Paul says, that constrains you to work onto the glory of God in all that you do? This is only a question that you can answer yourself. But these letters are meant to be provocative. They're meant to cause us to think, to ask ourselves the question, do we love Christ in this way? Now, some may say, well, I'm not, gonna ser- I'm, I'm not in that love relationship right now, so I'm just not going to serve. Well, that's not what Christ is looking for. He's looking for you to rekindle that love for Him again. Remember, it's not that His love towards you has ceased, It's that you have left your first love. So the onus is on you. He says in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Now go back and think about it. Consider it. One of the things that kept moving me forward early on in my Christian life was the understanding of God's love for me. Now, I, did, I haven't said that I've arrived at a complete understanding of God's love for me. I'm a finite person considering an infinite aspect of God. I don't know why God chose to love me. I certainly didn't solicit reasons for Him to love me. He certainly loved me despite myself. But His love for me kept motivating me to move forward, even when I failed miserably early on in my Christian life, even if I fail today, it's often His love that picks me up and keeps me moving forward. And any time I begin to doubt that love, maybe my circumstances have become overwhelming. 
difficult. And I begin to waver, oh Lord, do you truly love me? He always reminds me that the manner in which he demonstrated his love to, to me can never be changed. And he brings me back to First John 3.16 over and over and over again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Did I give my son? Yes, you did, Lord. I love you. I love you. Bottom line. I love you. And that love is the same love that moved and motivated Paul to the, to the point where he says it's the love of Christ that constrains me. So number one in the return to that love is to remember where you have fallen. Remember why you were saved by the Lord and how you were saved by the Lord. Remember those moments early on in your Christianity where your devotions were so real because every word of the scripture began to jump off the page and you just loved the Lord. He says, now go back and remember that again. Number two, he says repent, and that means to change, to change. It means to change. Stop what you're doing and change. Rekindle, revive that love once again. And then number three, notice with me, and do the first works and in the Greek construction, it's do the first works again. Now, once you revive that love, get back to work. Serve me. Follow me. Revive that love and get back at it. Following him. That's what he desires for you. But notice what he says if they don't. Or else, I will come to you quickly... And remove your lampstand, which is a reference to his presence, from its place, unless you repent. You repent. If Christ is going to remove his presence from that church, how serious of an issue is this? It's a huge issue. Let's remember that not every church building houses God. Do we realize that? In fact, sometimes when I drive by some of the most beautiful church buildings, old church buildings that we have in this area, and I see that they're mere shells, or I see that's painted on their front door the LGTBQ flag, I just, it's so sad. It's just so sad of what they once used to be. This is what the Ephesians church was in danger of becoming, irrelevant. Oh, the, the things could can still continue. A.W. Tozer said something once, and it really, really took me back. He said if the Holy Spirit was to depart the church in the book of Acts, 90% of what they were doing would cease. He says, however, the church in America, if the Holy Spirit were to depart only 10%, would stop. And once I thought about that, I was like, oh man, that's how much we are dependent upon ourselves. That's how much we are dependent on our novelties or our amenities. And may I say that's how much we are dependent on money. Money can keep a lot of things going what appears to be forward, but in the end it'll all come to ruin, won't it? 
Every time we have a problem in this country, what do we do? We throw more money at it. Money's going to solve all of the world's problems. Really? For the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus says you can't serve money and, and God at the same time. No, I'd rather be a poor church led by the Spirit than a rich church led by my flesh. So the next time you think that your insufficiencies or inadequacies keep you from serving God, just remember it is Him that works in and through you. It's not what you bring to the table. It's what God gives you at the table that matters. This is, you can't separate these two. Let me just show some verses to you, if I may, how these are interacted with one another. Of course, in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, once again, Matthew's take on this conversation between Jesus and this lawyer. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is it. This is where it all starts. Before we can do anything for anyone else, our, our full devotion and love to God must be established. He says this, and then, and only then, after the first commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that that second one always proceed, uh, succeeds the first. Now, churches in America have said, well, before you can love others, you have to love yourself. Trust me, you love yourself enough. <laughs> it's time now that we love God and then love others. Amen. Paul the Apostle knew this fully in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. Notice the relationship again. He says, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your what? Your love for all the saints. The love of God came first, then the love of all the saints. In Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, therefore, be imitators of God, number one, and then walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. What he's saying here is that you remember to love God because he first loved you and demonstrated that love through his only begotten son's crucifixion. In Ephesians 6, 23 and 24, peace to the brethren and love with faith from the God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always from God. Be, grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus in sincerity. Amen and amen. This is huge. If people come to Calvary, it's not necessary for me to hear that we have great worship or that the, teach is, the teaching is biblically strong and relevant. Those are necessary. But that's not what I'm initially listening for. If someone came and said, 
Here's what I love about Calvary. They love God and love people. I would say thank you. Because that's what we are truly striving for here at Calvary. In verse 6, he had one more issue, um, one more commendation, excuse me, for them. He says, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, how can we hate what God hates if we don't know what the Nicolaitans are, especially their works? There are two thoughts concerning the identity of the Nicolaitans. We don't know for sure, but here are the two most probable. The first one is found in the word itself by looking at the components of the word in the Greek language. Nico means priest. Laetans means laity. And the construction of the word would indicate priests over laity. That the Nicolaitans established a priesthood, as you would find in the Old Testament, and as you find in certain Christian denominations today, individuals of authority over the people. And that the people could not directly go to God, but were required to go through these priests before coming to God. Nicolaitans, priest over the laity. Now, I believe that God is opposed to such a hierarchy. The reason I believe that is because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Paul the Apostle went on to say that there's only one mediator between man and God, and that is Christ Jesus. Okay? There's only one way to God the Father. There's only one mediator to the Father. That is Christ. And it's possible that that is what they are referring to here. There's another idea that I think is also possible and maybe more probable, that in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, we're introduced to a man named Nicholas from Antioch. He was one of the early deacons. And as he began to travel, as in every case, the various deacons began to uh, accumulate disciples behind them. And it appears, history tells us, through the early church writers, that either A, Nicholas moved from a position of grace, or, or grace governed by righteousness, to a position what is called antinomianism. Big word, an antinomian. What is an antinomian, you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. It is one who believes that the grace of God is truly a license for sin. It is one that believes that Because we are saved by grace, it doesn't matter what we do physically or morally. This is consistent with Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, who stated that the Nicolaitans proclaimed unrestrained indulgence. Hippolytus, another early church father, that they were indifferent towards the manner in which men carried their lives, meaning how they lived. Clement, he had a little bit interesting uh, observation. He says that he believes that Nicolaus didn't personally depart to antinomianism, but his fathers misunderstood his teaching. That could be very true because Paul's teaching of grace was challenged everywhere he went. But in either case, 
Jesus says that he hated the works, anyone who would use grace as a license to sin or place a priesthood over the people, these deeds are condemned. And he commended the Ephesians for holding to such a person. The only other place that the Nicolaitans are mentioned, are Revelation 2, 14 and 15, in the church of Pergamos, Pergamos means uh, mixed marriage. It's truly where we see the church and the world married together. Jesus said to them, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Baal, Balaam, who taught Balak to put stumbling blocks before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. They were a compromising church, and Jesus condemned them for it. One commentator made an interesting observation that in his analysis of Peter's writings and Jude's writings, he believes that it was the works of the Nicolaitans that both Peter and Jude were addressing. Jude started, he said, I wanted to write about our common salvation in Christ. But out of necessity, I find that individuals have snuck into the church and bringing damaging heresies with them, he says. I'm paraphrasing. That's found in the Eric Standard only version. I love people who laugh at my jokes. Can I just say that? But he, he made the observation after his analysis of both of their letters saying it most likely was the deeds of the Nicolaitans in whom he was addressing. As we close today, let us understand that Jesus says in verse 7, After all we have said and talked about this morning, he says, Now he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you are here today and you are a Christian and the Spirit of God resides in you, Christ is asking you to listen up. Have you left your first love? Do you feel distant from God? Do you feel that your Christian life could be summed up as this, going down a dry water slide? That's one of the most painful experiences that you can ever experience. I'm sure that's happened to others, not just me, right? (laughs) He says, remember, repent, and repeat. And then he says something interesting here. To him who overcomes, that means those who return to their first love and start again, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The Bible starts with a garden, ends with a garden. Did you ever notice that? Now, D.A. Carson, in his observation of history, brought forward the, uh, the understanding that the temple of Artemis there in Ephesus was a temple that was built upon what is known as a tree shrine. And each and every time the Ephesians would look at a tree that has blossomed and bore fruit, they would be reminded of the worship of Artemis, Diana, their god. Jesus is saying that I am the true source of life. And the tree that I will give you is a, and the fruit that I will give you is the tree and fruit of eternal life. 
Again, superseding the pagan god of that time. And John writes these things to us. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.